0: So, should we keep a running tally of all the things that were in season five?
1: Oh gosh, if we did, I mean, there's already been a few people talking about that. Uh, but gosh, just the uh, the number of things that are the. Uh, I don't I, I don't have a thing set up to keep a tally. I'm pretty sure someone listening to this will do a tally of all the things that were either predicted referenced or just copied off of season five you know it, it, it's it's the way
0: <laughs> I mean yeah having a fan base is a heavy psychological burden, but one of the perks is that people will remember your bullshit garbage and then you can <laughs> ask them um <laughs> so they have released. Uh, The new Spelljammer, 5th edition, uh, I don't know what you call it, supplement? Is that that what this product is
1: called? I would call it a supplement in three parts. Um, This is evocative of prior editions when they would release a campaign setting in multiple books. Though the way they did it this time is weird because it's in three books, but sold as one package, at least for the time being. Um, Yeah, the box I have says Spelljammer Adventures
0: in Space. And then inside that box, there are three 64-page books. You pointed out right before
1: I hit record. They all are exactly the same length, which I did not notice. That is uh, it's it's pretty wild. It's like, yeah, three 64-page books. You have the Astral Adventurer's Guide, which is basically the player-slash-GM settings guide. You have Boo's Astral Menagerie, which is, well the 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 monster's manual effectively of spell jammer and then finally the light of uh zaris I, I this is going to be a point
0: of contention because uh dnd dnd always has a lot of gobbledygook yep. but the gobbledygook quotient in spell jammer is much higher so i'm going to say zarsis i know that's wrong but also what are you going to do are you going to exactly. call the cops are they going to oh. shoot me no well you I have mean, no power
1: that the they they already bring up, like, that type of issue with their section about the, the GIF, but we'll get there. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We'll get there. Oh, yeah, um,
0: yeah that's, that's why if you've listened to my show for a long time, you know I, I tend to have characters who are just named, like, Bob and George and mm-hmm. Ruth or whatever. Like, I'm not I'm not really fucking around with uh, Brun or Battlehammer. Uh, if that's what you want to do, if you want your studying to be Menzo Ben Zeruban, uh I can't stop you. But that's mm-hmm. just never been how I've I've, I've approached this hobby. Um, so we can start with the first book alphabetically. I think uh, also welcome to this dice funk supplement. Uh, I don't <laughs> know how we're gonna release this. It feels though like we have a responsibility uh, as a D and D. Kind of product based thing to talk about these books. So I decided to record something with Skitch, the most knowledgeable person in our orbit. Uh,
1: So that's what's happening. That's what you're listening to. You probably figured it out from Context Clues. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I appreciate being on board for this. As someone who's like, you know, knowledgeable of rules and some history, I'm not as much like knowledgeable of lore and setting stuff. So it's always kind of interesting to dive into this and. Be like, oh, wow, some of the stuff that was sort of, th- sort of thrown around in Markov is not really that far off brand, <laughs> given how Spelljammer is. So, yeah, let's just yeah uh, to
0: prepare for season five Markov of, of, of the show you're listening to. I re- went back and read all the old Spelljammer books from mm-hmm. the late 80s, early 90s and stuff, I believe. 88, 89. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of that stuff was just directly from the source. It might have sounded uh, silly. Uh, with it, with the grand exception of the uh, the species I made up, I don't know if we want to talk about that. But a lot of people think that's a spelljammer thing. Uh, mm. It's it's not, <laughs> but we we can get there.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. So to open up this book, the first thing I want to know every one of these D and D books uh, has a little disclaimer that's unique to the book. The first one here is. Disclaimer, space sickness is a common malady that primarily affects world huggers. I like that term as non, <laughs> non-space people. Before embarking on a wild space voyage, consult your local apothecary for a suitable remedy such as a box of crackers, a perfume-soaked handkerchief, or a mop. So we're starting with a joke about vomiting. Off to a great start. Mm-hmm. Um I guess the, the thing I want to start with besides that is the art. We have a Nautiloid on the cover here. This is the ship. is also like the first thing you see in uh, season five of our show. I guess there's a fight with the Neogi and then they retreat to the ship, and then there's a Nautiloid that chases them. right, uh, right, right. It's kind of like the that big encounter uh I, I like the nautiloid it's also very prominent in the upcoming video game baldur's gate 3 that's an early yeah. access right now
1: yeah i think it actually opens on like a nautiloid type shit i actually remember playing like an early version of the of the game before they started already making it play less like vanilla fifth edition in order to make it a more tolerable video game uh it's a. <laughs> uh, uh Josh Sawyer specifically brought up some commentary about that by the time they started making modifications. Um and so it's, it's it was always interesting seeing that. But yeah, like it, it's it's fun seeing this particular vessel because it's so iconic to spelljammer and honestly, it pairs well with Baldur's Gate as an entity as well. So it's a big time for Nautiloids. Actually, the recent Magic the Gathering set, uh, Battle
0: for Baldur's Gate, contained a card of the Nautiloid. Mm. It's a vehicle. It exiles your opponent's graveyard, and then you can bap them with it. It's uh, not very well played, but I think it's a cool card in theory. Next art I want to draw attention to on the contents page here is a Kendori. Uh mm. These actually show up in Season 6. There's a part where we have a race. Uh, basically, uh, a, a little uh, like a NASCAR race on animals. And uh, Lauren's <laughs> character, I believe, uh, was on a, a baby Kendori, these flying whales. So, yeah. not a season five thing, but um, I have used Kendori before. That's like a fir- that's the first obscure pull, I would say, of, of this episode we're going to get into. But, um, is there anything you want to talk about with these opening pages? Because a lot of it is, like, um, lore and terms.
1: I, w- I would call it, like, nerd shit. Yeah, pretty much. Like, Because, like, once you get into the introduction, it goes straight into explaining, like, what the wild space is, the wild space system. It goes into explicit detail about how the Astral Sea is a void, but you can breathe normally and exist indefinitely, never aging and such like that. Yeah. Um, so it's just like, it's one of those things that sort of like explains, well, how the heck can people breathe in space? And they're like, well, it's not space. It's the astral sea, you see. One big change you'll notice here
0: is that they do not, and correct me if I'm wrong, use the term phlogiston, which mm. is an ancient Greek concept of this kind of flammable air stuff that you will see in some spell material. It's like the stuff uh, that is out there um and you can like set it on fire and stuff. I'm going to put a link to Flogistan, Phlogiston, p h l o g i s t o n for you out there. That's one of the things if you listen to season 5, I say like, "Wilson, there's some stuff in Spelljammer called phlogiston and uh air envelopes and gravity planes and like we're not going to worry about that cuz it's like too much to keep in your head if you're listening to a podcast. It's fine if you want to use it, but like for me, that was more than I wanted to keep uh people thinking about, but yeah, this opens up
1: with wild space, astral sea,
0: astral plane, Mm -hmm. all those kind of terms.
1: Yeah. Like, yeah, there's, I don't think there's any reference to Flogston at all. I mean, heck, you can even just search D&D Beyond for the term and it just returns nothing. So Ah. I have a feeling that they've scrubbed that out of Spelljammer. Um, so, eh, they're cowards, alright? They they, want to embrace (laughs) the fire.
0: (laughs) Um, but yeah, do you, what do you think about all of this stuff? Do you, like, if you were sitting down to play Spelljammer, would you make everyone understand uh, gravity planes and air envelopes and so forth?
1: I mean, like, there's definitely some cool potential in there, and I believe you're going to want to make sure people are onboarded with that stuff if you're going to go into, like, the built-in campaign, since some of the way stuff works is predicated on that. But, like... Gosh. Like, it, it's... And there's so there's a lot in there to take anything for someone at first. And I think you could just focus on like the spell jamming helm and like how spell jamming itself works to get started. Um uh that's sort of what I would,
0: just yeah. from Googling I found that there is a spell jammer wiki which has its <laughs> own page for Flogiston. Um I, I have to say I, I got all my spell jammer materials, the old stuff from drive through RPG. Mm, uh, right right. If there's a better place, but that's if I have to uh, give credit to someone for helping me find all that old material. I went to physical stores to see if I could find it, and not surprisingly, they do not have that old shit. I,
1: I believe that Wizards actually went through and released pretty much every book prior to 5th edition in PDF form on Drive RPG. I believe that's what they did. Um So you can get, like, legal PDFs of pretty much everything except for 5th edition stuff, which, you know, fair enough, that's their business model. But, yeah, that would track as, like, the way to research OG Spelljammer. Um, Yeah, to get our year straight, uh, the original Spelljammer's Adventures in
0: Space box set was released in 89. I said 88 or 89, I believe. And then Mm -hmm. there was a a 3rd edition, it looks like here, uh, material. Uh, it hmm. says Paizo
1: published a spell jammer blah blah yep. blah I guess that was under the D20 system that was not official well it, it's, it's part of the OGL thing Paizo publishing was related to like the Dragon Magazine side of things before they split off and made Pathfinder and so like hmm. you can think of them as like one of the bigger third party entities back in that time frame and so anyone could release you know SRD OGL stuff back then and as long as Wizards was, oh, oh, well, there was TR, um, uh, shoot, <laughs> uh, TSR or, or, or Wizards, you know, um, mm-hmm. as long as they didn't like throw out a cease and desist or otherwise, you know, I think there was no, nothing stopping someone from making a Spelljammer book. And it was clear that Wizards directly was not as interested in that as they were in like Dark Sun or Eberron. Eberron was the big third edition setting that came about. <laughs> that, but, uh, yeah, yeah I'm,
0: I'm reading here. Apparently, third and fourth had references, specifically the Neogi would show up occasionally. Yes. But this is really the big triumphant. This is the first time they've put out a major product, it looks like, since, uh, you know, my lifetime. <laughs> I was born in 1990.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, like a year or so ago, they did an April fool, Fool's joke alluding to them releasing a Spelljammer book, which landed as expected as an April Fool's joke for a long, sort of like, upheld campaign setting and reference material. So, you know, it's finally out, which is great and there's certainly a lot of fan servicing going on in here from what I've been able to glean along with some you know, some some fun stuff. And so, yeah, uh Flogistan, man, that is that is some stuff <laughs> that is not in this one. You don't have to worry about it. You could breathe in space and fly with yeah. your own mind powers. Yeah, uh, we can probably get back to the lore, but what's uh
0: 12 minutes in by my reckoning. Chapter one, mm-hmm. character options. Uh, so they don't have any new classes, but they do have backgrounds and races. Um, yes. Surprised that they're still using the term races. I thought they were going to move away from well,
1: that. Well, yeah, and there's already been like some murmurings of what they might do down the line. You know, some people have been, you know, calling for, like, the term, like, ancestry or lineage, since they've used the term custom lineage already. So, mm-hmm. who who knows? We'll see where they go there. But, yeah, like, the one thing I'll note mechanically is that these backgrounds, I believe, are among are, you know, among the relatively small collection of backgrounds that have a feat packaged with them when you pick them up. Um with the Astral Drifter giving you the Magic Initiate feat for Cleric, and Wild Spacer giving you the Tough feat. Um, but outside of those two backgrounds, the only other character, op- character options are, well, these racial options.
0: I think it's uh, interesting to note that the feats are being packaged, because uh, a thing about feats is that they were more integral to the game prior to 5th edition, mm-hmm. when they were implemented as mostly an optional alternative to ability score improvements. Yes, Um and the early information we have about one DND, the successor to fifth edition or the continuation, depending on how you want to think about that a branding exercise uh, one of the small bits of information we have is that they are making feats more prominent and important uh, mm-hmm. so that's kind of one of the big teases I don't know if we wanted to go too deep into one DD because we have very little and presumably we can do a, a bonus pod when that gets you know released more but
1: right I, I will say that the feats being optional was if I'm not mistaken because I played a lot during the play test phase of DND next, It was sort of codified as sort of part of their language when 5th edition was being made of being backwards compatible with all prior editions of D&D. And in order to make it more like 1 and 2, feats didn't exist in those editions, so feats were like an optional thing. But ability score advancements are built in, and technically multi-classing is an optional rule as well, but... Uh, That being said, they were always very careful about handing out feats, like you alluded to, until I think the Strixhaven book came out. I think that was the first one where they gave out feats as part of backgrounds. And this is the second instance that I can think of. There might be others. I forget, but those are the two big ones I can think of in terms of actually giving out a feat as part of a background selection.
0: Yeah, it's funny you allude to uh, the, how optional certain things are when they appear to be the bedrock of the game. There's oh. been a lot of criticism of basically the design style of throwing a bunch of stuff in a pile and saying, look, oh, make your own game. <laughs> uh, which I understand why that people like the freedom that brings, but also feel like it gives the game kind of an unfocused uh, vision. And they're like, basically there is a tabletop game that is better at everything D&D does because they refuse to commit
1: Right. You know, that's one of the criticisms that people bring up is the fact that by trying to appeal so broadly um, and not just picking an identity and leaning into it, it leads to these sort of wishy-washy sort of stances on keywording, rules design and stuff. I could go on for hours. I have gone on for hours on the Discord about this topic <laughs> and comparing other games and such. But, um, but yeah, like it's, you know, these backgrounds... They're fine. They have some nice little flavor in there. I do think it's kind of interesting how, for the Astral Drifter, they, they just say flat out, you are 20d6 years older than you look because you spent that much time in the Astral Sea without aging, which is, I think that's kind of cute, uh, as a little bit of a touch on there. Um, but the one of the things I find that 5th Edition leaned into heavily over time has been just throwing a lot of well as they like to call them racial options to players because they are fairly easy to design and package and it's an easy way I think to broaden appeals just by having a lot more ways for your character to look. Yeah, the hardest thing is classes because you yeah. have to ba- balance the damage
0: output. So there's no classes in here, but the the easier things of background and race are uh, the first one, the Astral Elf, mm-hmm. uh, which is also the focus of the adventure path we will be talking about. Uh, is kind of the one of the iconic villains of Spelljammer. Is that the the elves are evil and like basically. Uh, fascist. Um, <laughs> it's a kind of inversion of the idea that like, mo- usually elves are like really uh, smart and uh, regal and perfect and beautiful. Uh, the inversion of this, which is not in the book, is the scroll, Uh Ooh. which... <laughs> You might notice Scrow is orcs backwards. Uh, we love to see it. Uh, the, sc- the Scrow are Spelljammers' good orcs. Uh, not not in this book at all. Not even mentioned, I don't think. I, I read them all, but I didn't see that. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the, the original Spelljammer joke, is what if elves were evil and orcs were good? We only got the evil elves. So that's interesting. Yeah. we just thought Scrow was too silly,
1: which, fair. And, and like... It's one of those things where even if you look at how the write-up for the astral elves are made for the player options, you know that sort of like uh, inherent coding of them being evil is not really, is not really put out there because it's a player option. But yeah, looking through the adventure path, we'll get there. Um, I do think it's neat how they have they look at this like these are basically just space aladrid. They got the phase step; it's just called starlight step <laughs> and. Um, Everything else yeah, the Eladrin on. are another thing
0: that I've undergone a lot of change. They were introduced in, in Planescape as kind of like angel elves, and then now they're like season elves in 5th um, yes. edition. They have like well, autumn the, forms, winter forms.
1: Well, and that's that's the second version, because the original version of Eladrin in 5th edition was the DMG option, which I used for the basis of Elias and all the Eladrin Valamins. Um, mm-hmm. which which you know they were they were very different than what they became by the time the Feywild books came out. They're like no, they're seasonal and they have all these other things going on. Which I guess, sure, it, it's their approach to, to make them way more Feywild adjacent. But like I said, the Astral, uh, Astral Elves, I'm looking at them and like, hmm, they can get Sacred Flame as an inherent cantrip, and they have all the other standard Elf qualities. So. You know, uh, yeah. There's the, basically
0: fantasy fiction has been trying to reinvent the elf for like a half a century at this point. There's usually
1: called high elves, but there's always like a fancier elf. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah. And, and high elf does make a return, I believe, in one D and D. So yeah, by the time we talk about that, they that whole thing might change even further. Um Oh lord, yes. save me from the elves! Save me from. Well, we got something next to the line here alphabetically. We got the auto gnome. Um, which now this is an interesting case because Warforged
0: already exist and are very prominent in the Eberron material. So how do you how do you feel about they did a job distinguishing another robot person?
1: Well, I, I think the it's kind of funny because I'm trying to think. Um, I think when people first saw the autonomes, they thought they were more like what is it the what was the oh shoot the. The little robot... What was Swift Justice? And, uh, the, a Modron, right? Modron. Yeah, so yeah, I no. think people thought that these were, like, Modron adjacent, but no, you know. They... These are mechanical beings built by rock gnomes, and the... And autonomes are things that were from the original Spelljammer, but they looked way sillier in the original <laughs> compendium. They look like... It's like, okay, what if... Tony stark in a power suit but their head is just a gnome head it's just like what if what if vimble was actually iron man as opposed to batman it's sort of the energy i get when i look at the Autonome art from back when but yeah these are you know these are i mean i guess they're fine i don't have any particular issue for it because they are mechanically fairly different from how the warforged turned out um They also have their nice little autonome history table, which I could see here. Uh, There's some options here that speak very much to me. I'll I'll say this. I'm someone who's usually very fond of construct characters and AI-adjacent things. So when I see something like, oh, gosh, the bottle gnomes. (laughs) Yeah, I just
0: put a a Magic the Gathering card bottle gnomes, which I think is the inspiration for – or vice versa for the original design where they are just what if gnomes were little robots. Pretty
1: much, yeah. Yeah. like I see, like the options your creator gave you autonomy and urged you to follow your dreams. Your creator died, leaving you to fend for yourself. A glitch caused you to forget your original programming. You don't remember who made you or where you came from. Uh, you didn't like how you're being treated, so you ran away from home. I'm like, well, okay. These are all these are all well and good. Uh, do,
0: thing- do Warforged benefit from healing spells? Because one of the autonome traits is they are uh, healed by healing spells. Mm. And I thought that was just uh, the same for
1: Warforged, is it not? Well, th- that's interesting because I remember Warforged at one point being like that, but I also remember that they changed the typing for Warforged specifically in order to allow them to actually be able to be healed um i'm trying to remember the actual terminology in here but um yeah if if we're our creature type
0: humanoid and that's fine it yes. specifically says autonomes are constructs and then it says uh you things that normally wouldn't heal constructs heal you and also mending can heal you which yes. is unique
1: yeah to to point out in the final version of the Warforge. It just says, although they are manufactured, Warforge are living humanoids. Resting, healing magic, and medicine skill all provide the same benefits to Warforge that they do to other humanoids. So, that is... If that was... I think that was different in 3rd edition, but they made it streamlined in 5th. But, for the autonomes, nah, they just leaned into the fact that they're constructs, which, hey, that's fine. That creates a little bit of simulationism that a party has to deal with, but... You know, just get a an artificer in the party, even though there's no artificer spells added they they they've done the artificer dirty in this edition.
0: <laughs> the only thing I can think of is that it may leave your autonome character weak to things that deal double damage to constructs like certain uh sonic mm.
1: attacks or like, thunder damage, yeah like shatter or something like that for sure um yeah that's a, that's a good point it's uh the one thing i will say though in exchange they make the point about how like well they got the mechanical nature so resistance to poison damage immunity to disease um and they have basically half trance so they don't they don't get the benefits of a long rest in 4 hours but they get it in 6 hours so sure that's fine and they also get tool uh two tool proficiencies which for whatever that's worth. Um, but overall, I mean, they're probably fine. I'm pretty sure that anyone playing them is going to use the silliest of voices when playing. I do like the autonome <laughs> bard art they have with the little rapier and the uh, five-string harp, I think is what they have there. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, the art is pretty good. I, I would
0: say that I was really disappointed with the last couple of books, um, not because the quality was low, but just because a lot of it was reused from Magic: The Gathering cards, Absolutely. and not just the, not just the Magic tie-in stuff like Strixhaven. Specifically, there was the uh, Treasury of Dragons, mm. which is not not a tie-in to Magic in any way, but used uh, largely Magic published art and so uh that was i feel like a pretty huge cost-cutting measure where this Spelljammer book seems pretty pretty legit all fresh stuff
1: all really high quality stuff and i, I think they've also been getting better at actually crediting their artists on a more regular basis in these uh mm-hmm. stuff i think they actually credit artists even on the one D announcement so like and i also like how we have different artists involved in the in a very short proximity, so it gives us a nice range of aesthetic approaches, because the autonomes definitely look like someone else drew them up compared to the Astral Elves and, well, the next race on our list here. Yeah, this is really what we came here to talk about. I feel like people probably fast-forwarded to
0: this part. This is what you want. Uh, it's the Hippo people. It's the Lea Melbeck, the most popular character. <laughs> uh, it's... It's the GIF,
1: or as the description jokes, the GIF. That's right. The fact that they devoted a a paragraph to this little joke here, but just like fine, fair enough. I remember back when Laura was thinking about playing as a GIF in the first place, and I'm just sitting here thinking like, I didn't even know that it was even designed up as a player option, but people were already homebrewing GIF as a player race option on D&D Beyond, so that was easy to sort of like slide in and just, justify but yeah uh and, and as far as i could tell they're pretty much as they've always been more or less yeah they got the firearm
0: uh mastery which is the kind of thing i gave Lea Myra back then which is that you ignore like uh loading and stuff uh attacking at long range with a firearm doesn't impose disadvantage on your attack roll yeah they're gu- they're gun hippos uh interestingly they are medium i would have definitely uh Not been shocked if they had been large.
1: uh, Yeah, they've they've avoided I think making any player races large. I think in the entirety of fifth edition and any of the final released versions of things, Um, Uh, uh, like like that's just been one of those design heuristics that they've leaned into that people have have umbrage with. Along with their handling of centaurs, I know is another thing that people looked at and like uh, that that ate if this ate if chief, you know so.
0: Yeah, it seems like a small change, but when you have, like, uh, certain things already baked into the game, like, where it's like, oh, a large creature can't be, like, pushed by the spell, or mm-hmm. you have things changing size with uh, reduce, enlarge, or whatever, it actually could cause a cascading effect where you end up with some kind of peasant railgun situation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's also wild because, like, medium size ranges from, like, four four feet and like, you know, just about five feet to, like, eight feet, because even Goliaths at eight feet tall? No, no, no. They're still medium. <laughs> so Yeah, that I, I was definitely
0: thinking if there was any large, it would be uh, Goliath or Fearbulg, but um yeah the gifts are pretty pretty cool they're uh they have swimming speed as as hippos i like that as well um they are the iconic thing i feel like if you were like oh let's play a spell jammer campaign the question isn't are you going to be a gif it's like is there going to be any non-gif characters
1: i think their answer to the size matter is the whole like hippo build trait where you count as one size larger when determining carrying capacity so that way it's like, well, no, no, you're not large as a creature, but you can carry as much as a large creature. So that's the same. So Yeah, that's that's pretty clever. It doesn't fuck with any of the pre-existing stuff, but it mm-hmm. lets you
0: corner case. The only other thing is the astral spark. It's this idea that they have a psychic connection to the astral plane and it can use it to adi- uh, inflict additional force damage. I don't remember anything in previous material like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's possible. I, I'm forgetful. It's been... Oh my gosh, two years since Markov? But um, that feels new, but also not particularly wild. It's just like, oh, they're from space, they have a space connection, they can do a little space magic.
1: Yeah. Okay. And and it's like, it's extra force damage. The only thing I look at when it comes to this is whether or not a monk's unarmed strike counts as a simple or martial weapon. Because Wizards is very good at acting like the monk's unarmed strike doesn't count as a weapon for a lot of things like Divine Smite. So... I wouldn't be surprised mm. if Jeremy Crawford would have a ruling saying yes or no on this. And I'm like, they they could have had that clear there. But, yeah, it's cute. It works. And just like all contemporary um, racial traits that have like charges, it's use it a number of times to equal the proficiency bonus recharge after long rest. So no complaints there.
0: Yep, I expect we'll be seeing gifts in the show soon. Uh, next up, Hado Z. Uh, there was a cameo of a Z in season five when they went to the Colt compound. Uh, they ran into one. I just thought it was a funny little creature in the old books that no one knew about. And, uh, I believe Quinn, uh, tried talking to it in a monkey language, uh, just doing like a chimp impression. And it was like a funny scene, but it it didn't have like lore implications or anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, but now the, the Haddoze are, I I think much more prominent now. They're kind of a, a science experiment, uh, that, that has become, uh, you know, sapient, uh, after all kinds of, um i don't know what's this It says an elixir i think in the description yep. that they got from wizards
1: yep uh, it says the wizard fed the captives an experimental elixir that enlarged them and turned them into sapient bipedal beings um so and- yeah they're like sugar glider chimpanzees basically yeah and uh the art definitely gives that vibe all the way there um I think I'm gonna use them uh, more, more going
0: forward. I think the little joke I had, which is like, oh, the audience won't know what these are and they'll think it's a funny idea. Uh, but now it's just like, oh no, this is a legit creature. It can kind of do a little bit of flying, but not like break uh, balance but like like an air just going over a puzzle mm-hmm. uh it has an interesting little backstory you can ask a lot of questions uh this is it's a, it's some good stuff and uh they also fit really well into uh, any kind of ship born either in space or on the ocean because they can like fly from uh rigging to rigging which yep. i think is uh,
1: a great uh, visual yeah um <clears throat> i also find that the glide property because of how it's written it's like you could fall from potentially 80 height and just not take damage. You know, just... I yeah. Do, so, and I'll, I do like the little resistance trait in there, dexterous feet. Whenever I see... I uh, I was looking at this and I'm like, if you're doing something more magic adjacent, I'm just like, what if Ixalan but in space? And then you could just... These would just be your goblins in, in this uh replacement yeah in that they, case.
0: they do have yeah if you if you don't know magic in ixalan one of the one of the planes of that um lore the goblins look very different they're almost like ape-like pirates uh and this is very much a piece of that <laughs>
1: <laughs> i love them they're they're so good <laughs>
0: It is a great aesthetic. I've actually thought about trying to like bring something like that onto the show be like, no, this is a different kind of goblin. But just in an audio medium, I just don't think it hits
1: the same way. No, no, no. So. Yeah, but the Had oz being a thing, that's a pleasant surprise. I think the bigger uh, pleasant surprise for a lot of people um, than Had oz are the plasmoids because there's certain characters people think about when they look at, well, the little trio of art right there for the
0: plasmoids. <laughs> Yeah, this is one of the big things that people on social media have been saying. Oh, they stole your plasmoid. Um, Plasmoids were in the old books, but they were not prominent. They were not player character options. Uh, This is a a big glow up for the plasmoid, which is essentially just a living jelly. It's a, you know, it's a flubber, a big flubber, or it can be a small flubber. The size actually you get to choose medium or small, which is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. the art on these are incredible. I just tweeted one of the ones in, a, in the later book, which is just a, a jelly man with a gun, Yeah, <laughs> which oh. really tickles me. I, it, it's uh, gra- I,
1: I also just like how they just show what of the Plasmoids just like as, like, no libs, just a little slime, just just a little guy, mm-hmm. a little guy or gal or little ooze. Oh,
0: well, yeah. As, as slime taught us last season, uh, the slime molds have, th- like, over 200 genders. So mm-hmm. who knows? Um, amorphous, you can squeeze through a space as narrow as one inch wide, prepare, provided you are wearing and carrying nothing. That's sick as hell. Yeah. Uh, potentially game breaking. Uh, shape self. You can change, you reshape your body to give yourself uh, a head, two arms, two legs, or you can revert to a
1: limbless blob. I actually like a uh, lot of, of fun stuff. I actually like the thought they 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 specify they can have a head, one or two arms, one or two legs. So I'm just like. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um and the, the the I the art of the uh the ranger plasmoid on a space hamster is also just very good. Uh
0: yeah. Space hamster is also something uh, you know, that that was featured in Markov. Uh not made famous by Spelljammer, although it wasn't Spelljammer, made famous by Baldur's Gate. Yeah. With a uh, Boo who got their name on one of these books. Um so, plasmoids are great. I, in this season, one of the main characters, Fortunato, is a plasmoid, and I joked that um, when these books came out, they were gonna contradict a lot of stuff I said about my plasmoids, which they do. Like uh, They don't have any ability here to like give their biomass away, which is something Fortunato does in the, in the season that is mm-hmm. ongoing as of this recording. So, uh, I was there first. They should really uh, issue a correction to give plasmoids that ability.
1: I, I The one thing about plasmoids I find interesting, is the fact that they have an ability to hold their breath for one hour and just like hold their breath that that's yeah. What breath? What <laughs> breath?
0: <laughs> just, um, yeah. Actually one, one of the things I have is uh, Fortunato talks uh, weird because they don't have lungs or a diaphragm, which are the way you know you and I are shaping our speech right now. So he talks like this because yeah. he's like squeezing his fucking internal sac to make this.
1: Uh, yeah, so. it's, yeah, it's all fric, it's all fricatives and nothing else in terms of the 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 phoneme. So, is a very nice <laughs> detail there. I <laughs> love a ling-
0: linguist terminology. Uh, last up here, I have the Thrycreen, which have shown up in a number of books. but The original Monster Manual, I think one of the uh, Eberron books or something. They're a Dark Sun staple and also a Spelljammer staple. Uh, this is pretty much your basic stuff. The Chameleon Carapace, the Second Arms. Uh, not really much to say here. One, this was a main character in Season 7, so we talked a lot about Thrycreen. Um, but they're bug people. And uh, they're pretty cool.
1: Mm-hmm. It's um, it's interesting because there's another game I've been looking at called um, Icon, and I won't delve, delve too much in there. But they have a insect slash crustacean race called the Zixo, and mm. and in there. Um, The designer makes a note about how they don't actually have telepathy like the the Thrycreen do, but what they have is a high sensitivity to pheromones and chemicals, so they can communicate directly with pheromones, which appears like telepathy. Um, So I'm not sure if that was necessarily a direct sort of commentary on the Thrycreen having telepathy, but I think it's an interesting just sort of way where, you know, insect-like creatures... Having a non-verbal form of communication as a f- focal point. I also find neat how Thryreen are creature type monstrosities. So, f- for wherever that's relevant. <laughs> yeah,
0: I think in season seven we did let Laura talk normally, uh, but her, uh, her Thryreen developing its telepathy and psychic powers was also like their entire personal arc and plot. So we like we talked about that but it was also it's also like when I play Kenku mm-hmm. which in many editions uh canonically can only sp- uh repeat things they've heard like parrots and can't form new sentences I kind of like hand wave that a little bit just for ease of roleplay but I still they still have mimicry as an ability it's just not also a limitation which mm-hmm. I mean I think you could argue that you know we should <laughs> embrace that more but it's hard
1: enough doing a lot of stuff on, on the show <laughs> especially if someone is I could just imagine a fan keeping a dictionary of every term the Kenku has heard it's like ah they should have been able to uh, say that
0: <laughs> yeah
1: uh, so that's
0: that's it for the racial options. We're gonna probably move faster through the book now. But yep. this this next part is a lot of lore stuff. We talked about the gravity and the air envelopes. Like I said, I don't intend on going too hard in any space seasons we do on this stuff. I feel like people have internalized uh, what you might call like Star Wars, Star Trek rules of space, mm-hmm. and that is pretty uh, sufficient. I do like uh, there's only a couple spells here. One is air bubble. Which uh, you know does exactly what it sounds, puts an air bubble over your head, and I feel like uh, I in season five I kind of said, <clears throat> "Oh, I hiccuped." I said, um, "If you go outside the ship, you will not asphyxiate immediately because you have uh, like a little uh, chip in you, which creates a little air bubble around you for a short time." Like basically, I in lore explained that this spell the spell exists, and the book now makes it a castable thing. So. They were kind of, we're
1: we're on the same road, we're just in different lanes as far as air bubble goes. My favorite detail about the air bubble spell is the fact that it says if the creature has more than one head, it makes one air bubble, but that should be all that the creature needs, assuming it only has one respiratory system for all of its heads, which I'm like... Really, uh, That just feels like a lot to add is like a, uh, a thing to just explain away that possible edge case there. So, uh, yeah, silly details there. The other spell they have in here is create spell jamming helm, which whew, that's a that gets to a whole new thing. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, one of the
0: interesting things about Spelljammer, or really to me one of the funniest things, is that it was kind of made under duress. Uh, There was, originally there was kind of like a boom in sci-fi and TSR wanted to capitalize on it and so they told their designers, this is how the story goes anyway, is that they were like, yeah, just make a sci-fi thing, we'll just kick it out the door. And that's why it's it's often very silly and kind of unbalanced because the designers were kind of just... You know they were just Calvin balling it a little bit, mm-hmm. and one of the elements of that is how many things are called spelljammers. Uh, the ships in the setting are called spelljammers. Uh, the controls are called spelljammer helms. Uh, there is a mystical ship in the setting called the spelljammer. Uh, the act of flying is spelljamming. Uh, the people who drive the ships are spelljammers. Like <laughs> the branding is just so silly, um, but the the spelljammer helm as a specific item. Uh, It may may surprise you to learn that what that means is the captain's seat. Yep. (laughs) That's all that means. They're just fancy chairs. And the art of these are like, uh, there's a red chair over a a fire sigil. There's a blue chair over an ice sigil. And Mm -hmm. there's like a purple chair over like a poison sigil. And they all have like, you know, different backs and arms. (laughs) It's like creating your own custom fancy chair. Mm
1: -hmm. It is. I also... Find fascinating how they make a point how, in order for the chair, in order for the ship to like work or otherwise, it has to be at least one ton or more. Again, a detail I'm like, okay, sure, why not? I also find it wild because, um, the uh, the they make a big point about how fast you can move in space with the with spell jamming so they even have a line in here where if the ship is in space and no other objects weighing one ton or more are within one mile of it you can use a spell jamming helm to move the vessel fast enough to travel 100 million miles in 24 hours it's that's also kind of like that same category of calvin balling like oh you can go like 100 million miles in a day sure why not
0: yeah it, it's one of those things where they're like oh we want to have some kind of internal uh, astron- astronomy to this like we have these pictures of the astral sea and the wild space and what was the doom space um but it's like also you know uh, it's also nonsense <laughs> <laughs> and so i feel like you can you can choose to skip or ignore a lot of this um personally uh, not really in in in, invested in a lot of these uh, measurements and ideas. I think they're fine if you want to implement them, if you yourself don't know where to start with this. But like I said, I, I tend to default to Star Trek or st- uh, Star Wars logic when it, with all these uh,
1: mm-hmm. numbers and stuff. And they and in terms of like starting out in here, uh, we'll get this here in a little bit, but they offer a pretty wide range of, well, vessels for you to do your spell jamming on.
0: <laughs> sure, yeah. That's the rest of this book. Uh, we can get to in just a moment. The last thing I want to say is I think the selection of magic spells and magic items are anemic. Yes. We got two spells, three items. Uh, I'm not happy, honestly. I was hoping for more. That's one of the things that I think <laughs> is the most useful about these books.
1: Yeah. Uh, honestly. Uh, agreed. Uh, for exa- for, yeah. Yeah. It's just because, like... You know, you look at the number of vessels, and it's like, how many of these are you going to end up using across your campaigns? That might be questionable. You might use a handful of vessels, but if you have a robust number of items and spells, those are all probably going to be touched on at some point. And so, again, it's just like, here's one design space, very underutilized. Here's a different design space that's very world building centered, that's deeply spread out. And, like, well, that's a weird place to spend all your attention.
0: Yeah, it was one of my main criticisms there. Now that we get to the ship part, I will say, go back and listen to season five. I mentioned maybe half of these ships, um, but it's, once again, because it's an audio medium, it's not like, they besides the Nautiloid, maybe. Mm-hmm make a huge impression. I had mentioned like, oh, it's a Neogi night spider. It's a ship that looks like a weird blood filled insect. And it's like, that's a cool image. And then it's like the fact that it is that never really comes up Mm -hmm. again. It's just like a, it's, it's flavor really. Where in the book, they give you all these chambers and they essentially make ships into dungeons, which is to me, one of the most interesting like aspects of Spelljammer because I find traditional dungeon design and implementation really inorganic Mm -hmm. uh like when i'm writing a setting or an adventure i have to really (laughs) kind of contort things to why is there a dungeon here why are people putting treasures in these chests how is that why are there monsters here like none of that is anything to me mm-hmm. i know it's tradition uh but it, it's rarely rare i put a, a dungeon ass dungeon in a campaign unless i really can make it make sense organically and having these ships be dungeons where they're like no this is a living quarters you can loot it here's like you know the the crew quarters where you fight and like it's almost dungeon-esque and that's how I, I intend to use these things more of as like floating dungeons. Like you board them and then dungeon crawl through them. So
1: I, I also do love looking at the different maps. Um, just like the the ballistas, the little like crossbows that are set up on the ships as firearms. Because again, they could, you can shoot those things without needing um, without needing anything special. But like the ballistas and. Every single ship it seems has its own sort of detailed outlining of the weaponry that's on it, the layout size, and as you said, like if you're doing like a space piracy campaign or something, well here's your here's all your dungeons basically <laughs> with their own built in weapon setups and all that stuff.
0: Yeah. You get to do a whole podcast just on running, like, ship-to-ship combat. I think, Um not to name drop, but the Adventure Zone had a season recently where they did kind of ship-to-ship combat, and the DM Griffin, like, did a bunch of... I don't know what you call it, like homebrew stuff that was rarely actually ever used and you know, not, not to start drama or anything. I personally don't think it's worth the effort to try to make your own game on top of another game. And I would much more basically make it with like some kind of initial role. Uh, to get them into close combat, and then have boarding action, and then do the thing that the game was designed, which is have your characters fight other characters.
1: Yeah, and they and they even have a brief area about ship-to-ship combat. Um, above the before the vessels. I have a quick question for you. So, just based on just raw aesthetics, um, which one of the vessels in the book just kind of jumps out at you, uh, personally? Because I have one that I really oh. like out of here. That's interesting. Yeah,
0: the, we said earlier the Nautiloid is the most iconic one, but the one that I. Th- uh, the one I think I like the most is the uh, Astral Elf Star Moth, mm. which is a uh, kind of a green-winged ship. It's, it's actually a plot point in the adventure path we'll get to, uh, but it has these beautiful, huge wings. Yeah, I think that's. I, I think it comes up in Markov uh, briefly, but yeah, that's that's one of my favorites, the Star Moth.
1: I, I'm, I'm really fond, especially with the way they do it with the art, of the turtle ship. I just love <laughs> the way that it looks.
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: it's very funny. yeah, I don't know if this is clear. All the
0: ships in Spelljammer are just animals. it's just the wasp, the hammerhead, the yep. turtle the, yeah they're all just uh, Nautiloids are there's a creature called a Nautilus uh, so it is just that animal Avo uh, is a ship. Once again the spelljammer uh, designers didn't exactly have a ton of time and money to like make a a, a believable uh breathing world mm-hmm. uh they weren't exactly doing dune.
1: Uh, so it's,
0: it's a, it's a pretty silly, it's a, it's a funny setting.
1: Yes, it is. I, I think that's the other point too. There's like, you can't, you can't be too self-serious about how the world works and such because, you know, it just, just kind of go with it. it. It's, it's, it's wild space magic stuff. So, you know, have some fun with it. Um, yeah
0: it is it is
1: it is hippo people
0: uh, riding on turtle ships fighting monkey people on moth ships like just if you try to fight that <laughs> you're you're not really getting what you paid for
1: <laughs>
0: um and the last section of the book is a little setting vignette the rock of brawl which yes. is like once again a low-effort joke on the, the Rock of Gibraltar, mm-hmm. um, which is basically this is something they would revisit and went with uh, Planescape. I believe in '94, so five years later, which is uh, to give the setting a, an iconic location. The way Sigil is for Planescape, it's just kind of like the center of life. It is like the New York of Spelljammer. It's where everything is. That's where you'll, you know, get quests and uh, downtime, and it's just where everything is. Um, I don't know how much I going to get in here because it's like, oh, here are the sections of the city. Here are some important characters. And it's like, mm-hmm. if I was playing it, I would rip a lot of this out. I would do my own kind of thing, except for,
1: except for mm-hmm. Large Luigi. I was going to say, like, like, like you know, <laughs> Large <laughs> Luigi is the star of the Rock of Brawl. I just, the art, <laughs> just the name, uh, just, yeah. there's it's just, that the, the fact that he works at the Happy beholder is just like, sure, great. Perfect.
0: I don't remember if Large Luigi is from anything. I assume a Google search could confirm if it was like a novel or, you know, something. I don't remember Large Luigi. It's fucking incredible. Yeah. And a great note to end that book on. Uh,
1: large uh, Luigi. Apparently there's a reference in second edition where he was formerly lawful evil then became lawful neutral. So, you know, let's um, so- up for him. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of another a little bit of a glow up thing there. But yeah. uh, And then mentioned in a novel called The Maelstrom's Eye. So I think that's kind of where that's sort of where this is a callback for. But yeah, uh, the art for large Luigi is so good. Um, (laughs) Yeah. It's great.
0: So that's the first book. We took 50 minutes. I assume the other ones are going to be shorter, uh, but here's... The next one is Boo's Astral Menagerie. Mm-hmm. That is the uh, the monster manual. I don't know if you want to read uh, anything in here. I'm actually going to stand up and go turn the light on, because as we are recording, it has now gotten too dark to read. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, yeah. So, um, for those that don't know, Boo itself uh, is a hamster. Um, it is something that was uh, made very popular in the game Baldur's Gate. Uh, as the pet of Minsk. Uh, and Minsk refers to Boo as a miniature giant space hamster. So, you know, there's the giant space hamsters, which are a spell jammer thing, and then Boo is just a miniature giant space hamster. Which, you know, that's just all well and good. Uh, one of the other things that they do very quickly at the beginning of the Astral Menagerie, in fact, we get here is we got to get into the disclaimer, which is being told by Boo himself saying, (coughs) disclaimer, squeak, squeak, translation. You're on Boo's turf now, world hugger. Unless you want a hamster knuckle sandwich, you better watch where you're spell jamming. And before you blow up a nautiloid, make sure there are no space hamsters aboard it. Otherwise, prepare the face the wrath of Boo. So, a fair enough disclaimer, and just playing well into the notion of these books with a re- with a person's name, an entity's name on it, you know, adding to the flavor in there. Um, I do love
0: mm-hmm. the the focus on Boo on the next page. There's like a quote, and it says "squeak," and then it's attributed to Boo. Yeah. So they really just. <laughs> <laughs> they really went full. Haul. He
1: is very cute. Yes, it, it is. It is great. Um, they they also point out how to make astral variants of creatures. Just. Yeah, this is
0: actually very notable because the original Spelljammer books were filled with garbage by which I mean they, t- they took something from the old book and then added the word space to it and then acted like it was new mm-hmm. uh, There's a ton of that shit and so this book just says, hey, you can add space to something <laughs> and it doesn't waste your time and energy with uh, reprinting all that and so honestly huge thumbs up there
1: Yeah, that, that, that keeps the bestiary relatively lean in a good way because it keeps it to like, okay, here's things that are, aren't just space something though they do have a space something they do have a handful of space something in the beast the here, which we'll get to because some of these are just uh so uh instead of going through everything in here i, I guess the big thing looking at the collection of the menagerie what are, are the standouts that you found when you're leafing through this yeah, so
0: though, I do want to go over a couple standouts here. The first thing I alluded to this earlier is you're not going to find the solitaire in here, right? Which is a creature I made up in season five, in which a lot of I've gotten a lot of messages of people saying that they're not in here. That's um, <laughs> because they're not from Spelljammer. Uh, that was just a, that's an Austin awesome original, and I, I mean, maybe this is egotistical. I'm just I'm glad everyone enjoys them and thinks that they are deserving of official status, but uh, that's a, that's me, not Spelljammer. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with that out of the way, uh, I will say first up, alphabetically, is the Artux, which is uh, one of my favorite designs. I don't recall these from the old books. If mm. they are in there, their art was not memorable. Like <laughs> these are, they are essentially um, the spiny uh sea stars i don't know if you're familiar with this uh real creature they're like a carnivorous uh, starfish Mm. uh but but these are plants which is interesting there are in my opinion not enough plant creatures in D&D. there are the blights and the treants but that's well not it's not it but it's really the only ones that come to mind yeah so some these are really cool looking
1: well and and yeah like you're alluding to like there's the designs are really cool, and I think why I, I also just like about their design is, um you know, because like the, these are intelligent; these are plant creatures that actually you know can run their own ships. They, um, they have a little bit of history about how Beholders destroyed their original homeworld, and they you know. And they're in their language. I like their language description. It's a made up of rustling sounds, snaps, pops, and hisses. It has no written form. So a lot of sibilant sounds that'd be great to capture in an audio-only format. <laughs> Yeah, I just I just looked it up
0: again, and yeah, they, they are in one of the old books. There's one low-quality image in one of these books, and it does not do anything for me. I'm looking at it now. It has a similar, it uh, looks like you know a, f- a five-pointed or six-pointed plant creature, mm-hmm. but uh, it doesn't spark joy. And yeah. all three of the ones in this book spark intense amounts of joy. Yeah,
1: it, uh, the art, I think I'm looking at the same art, and it looks like... We look at the Artuk priest in particular. It's like, okay, the Artuk priest is taking that original idea but making it way more uh, engaging aesthetically. Um, also, so, I think I truly nailed that one. Oh yeah, and the fact that all spider climb, perfect, no changes there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, so,
0: look, looking through the monster manual, uh, one to point out is the Dowar, which are intelligent penguins. Uh, one of these shows up in Markov, so I'm, I'm glad they got a shout out. They're basically just like um, <laughs> they're the kind of the the stereotype of the merchant alien, mm-hmm. which you might know of, like the Ferengi from Star Trek, or that uh, weird little guy from The Phantom Menace. Um, but they're just penguins, and I thought that was funny, and I took that, and I'm glad to
1: see they're here. Um, <laughs> does any any other ones catch your eye? Um, so, the, I I do like the, the handful of little, like, deeper dives into stuff, like, you have the Kindori, we've already talked about those, um, I do find it interesting how we have both lunar and solar dragons, and those are two distinct Mm -hmm. things with their own little details, and I was leafing through this, and I have to bring this up, because they just have this name in here, they have two names in here that just jump out at me, one is the Murder Comet, Um, Uh the art for it which is just amazing it just looks like it's just a comet that's a face that is very sinister which um, is very good Uh, I I just find that just to be pretty wild Um, the only thing about that I can find of note here is that um, it's meant to be representative of the creator of it there so it basically uh, it could be made by anyone who is sufficiently evil enough to want to put out a murder comet. But then they have space clowns as a thing. There's other space yeah. things, but space
0: clown. Um,. We're going to get here, but like um, (laughs) most of these books, I was like reading through all three and thinking like, yeah, you know, I did this already. I did this already. Like, oh, that's fun. That's clever. That's cool. That's cool. Uh, Space clown was the only one I saw
1: and it said like, oh, I'm going to use this. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, the first sentence, space clowns are the inhabitants of a wild space system known as cloud space. I'm like, it's it's so specific
0: it's like one of those things that like if i had this idea i would probably not use it because i'd be like it's it's too much it's too on the nose it's too goofy but now they've given me permission to implement and i can say like no it's
1: from the book they're clowns it's in clown space my my response is who let mark rosewater walk in and write this up you know (laughs) just kind of (laughs) yeah (laughs) um uh fuck clowns (laughs) just goddamn um but the, uh, i'm trying to think of the other ones that kind of jumped out at me um they have the- i will say that the the, the
0: Mercane are in here mm-hmm. uh some in some editions they're called the arcane but obviously that's confusing cuz that's a kind of magic uh i don't remember if they were giants i guess they probably were but here they're characterized as giants that love once again doing uh trade it's it's a very common sci-fi trope is the trade species Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. There's a longer conversation. Many people have written long essays about the anti-Semitic implications of the Ferengi. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think in Season 5, I had a Mercane planned. But then at the end, I I may have used a Fadalkin, which is a blue-skinned person from Magic the Gathering, because the Mercane are also blue-skinned. I'd have to go back and listen. But um, it's interesting that they're here uh, because uh, they are also featured in Planescape some. So uh making them more firmly in the setting is uh you know i think a, probably a good step to if they're releasing that planescape material next year making them more prominent there as well
1: I, I also like the um the uh the raygar i believe is how they pronounce them the uh the yeah in season five i called it the rygar mm. once
0: again pronunciation is you know it's calvin ball but they they have I think made some significant changes to the species. I don't know if I, I cut you off, I guess you want to talk about the Rhygar. No, no, Rhygar? no, no, you go ahead. You go
1: ahead. Um, about like,
0: um, you, so yeah. the way that they're described in the old books is that they're extremely androgynous. I think I called him like the David Bowie aliens. Um, <laughs> it's like, the, the females are masculine and the males are feminine, I guess, is, like, how they're presented. And they have um – they're very artistic. Like, the whole thing is they love making art. And, like, it's like, okay, they're androgynous artists. I don't know if this is, like, a weird – uh, you know late 80s hair metal thing because they have weird hair uh, but I don't remember them being rainbow striped their skin is like blue and uh, pink like cotton candy I guess because the drawings were black and white in those other books maybe that was a mentioned not shown mm-hmm. uh, and they also have these um these things that follow them around what are they called here
1: the oh oh shoot 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 yeah uh, the. You're, you're talking about no that's it's not the uh aesthetic you know
0: the aesthetic is like they're there there are creatures they can ride i guess that oh. what they're called here is the talerith. right i thought it was called something else the, i think they changed
1: that yeah the jewelry right right that they that they wear um. mm-hmm
0: yeah, the Rygar, it says Talareth, the Rygar creates this piece of jewelry, uh, chooses its form, bracelet, brooch, necklace, while it wears this, any weapon wielded by the Rygar deals an extra 1d6 force damage, as an action a Rygar can use its Talareth to summon a golem that looks just like the Rygar. Um, I remember that they had a thing, because I, I reflavored it in season 5 to be a flesh technology, mm. a la the movie *Existence*. So there definitely was something I just don't remember being called a Talaris. Hmm. I'm googling. You can you can continue talking about them if you
1: want. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I I mostly just particularly just liked the way that the they were depicted in. I think the what was the depicted um, is a shot of a Rhaegar with the the golem. It's the summoning, summoning its own golem there, and the hair just being particularly uh fun looking because the it makes me because they the artist leaned into the idea of them um basically the the cephaloid um cephalopod rather the cephalopod-esque sort of nature so it's almost like it almost feels like uh like the the tendrils and such of like an octopus reaching out from their heads and such they thought this is a really nice sort of look in there um yeah, so I am I'm
0: on the I'm, I'm on the Forgotten Realms Wikipedia here. It says uh Rygar entered combat with their servitor helots and Lakshu mm. and relied on their shakti. And there's no link to a shakti. I think that's cuz the Lakshu were uh, uh, serv- servants of the Rygar, which are not mentioned all here, but they do the aesthetics, they're kind of living ships are. Yeah. Um, but Shakti is, yes, that, that rings the bell as the, the thing they had, which is not here. I wonder why that was changed. I assume it's because it means something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shakti means power in Hindu philosophy. Yes, they changed it to not be mm. uh, appropriate, yeah. offensive to... Yeah. to hinduism which is a living religion also why like i will have things from greek mythology norse mythology celtic mythology i tend to stay away from hinduism because it is still a practiced world religion
1: <laughs> yep that 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 tracks there um the only other thing i was going to note in all of this is yeah the last detail i find interesting is the fact that the um their armor class has a glory sort of call out there it's just their glory the rygar's armor class includes this charisma modifier <laughs> and they have 24 charisma so that's a uh, <laughs> it's a spicy armor class right there um
0: yeah, I'm, I'm reading now from this uh, Spelljammer book. Uh, this, uh, the Shakti is a small statuette that resembles a figurine of wondrous power. Each Shakti is designed by and for its user, rendering each one a unique item. So the, it is similar to the Talarith, the thing that they have here, which is a piece of jewelry that can uh, turn into a, uh, a golem of them, mm. uh, but stripped of its Hindu... Uh, implications that's extra, I think this is the this is the analysis you're only going to find here folks <laughs> if you just type in like a spell jammer book review and you get some yahoo talking about the balance of the new shit uh we ain't, we're not here for that I'm here to give you the fucking inside
1: scoop mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh I'm, I'm scrolling through this and I just scrolled past the uh, solar dragon art they got and just like love it Perfect. The lunar and solar dragons. I actually, Quinn sent me a message and was like, huh,
0: lunar and solar dragons. That's legally distinct from moon and sun dragons, isn't it? <laughs> uh, with the, the conflict of season five. Um, there's a, a Surian, which is also a dark sun thing, which are kind of a, just a slightly different lizard folk. And in fact, it literally says Surman are lizard folk who have adapted to life in arid climates. Uh, I really. Seems like mostly a flavor difference. The art, they are much uh, thinner. Mm-hmm. They're like a different uh,
1: lizard, I guess. But
0: once again, hard to convey in an audio only medium.
1: Yep. And then immediately afterwards is the Starlight Apparition, which that—that uh, that is something that I look at that I'm like, hmm, I could use that for some stuff. I got some ideas for that. Uh, yeah, th- that comes up in the adventure path as a way it's like, if you kill
0: a plot important <laughs> character, you can have them come back as a starlight imp- apparition to deliver
1: their exposition. <laughs> it's like you kill, you kill an NPC and on their body is a recording of them talking about where you should go next <laughs> in the campaign. Uh-huh. So it's like, <laughs> uh, as in addition to the clown,
0: uh, people, there's also vampires. Uh, which I give that person a raise. That's a uh, that's the kind of pun that keeps people coming back.
1: Mm-hmm. Vampires. I, I also yeah, I, I love that the vampires they have a specific line saying that they eat, drink, and sleep because they like to, not because they must. <laughs> um, I'm uh-huh. just like, well, sure. They they listen. They're they're pirates. They gotta they gotta have their 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 meat and their rest because why not? <laughs> Uh, and then the final entry is
0: the Zodar, which comes up in season five. It, is, uh, it has actually the same kind of arc. Once again, this is probably uh, a coincidence. I'm not actually accusing Wizards of stealing from me, but uh, in the Venture Path we're about to discuss, uh, the Zodar is like the main henchman of one of the villains, and that is what happens in season five as well. And so I think if you're, if you're keeping the tally of uh, things that are similar... Uh, that is a big one. The Zodar is just a giant suit of armor that is muscle all the way through. It only speaks three times, yep. uh, which is also something noted on the in the campaign we did. Um, but, you know, interestingly, uh, I had bigger plans for that, uh, which didn't come to fruition, which is fine. That's the way yep. the show works. Uh, but it also lets me maybe bring the Zodar back in a future space season, and maybe those mysteries will be unveiled there. Mm-hmm. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> um, yeah no, no no changes from the old spelljammer material. This is a, the zodar I got from 1989 is the zodar you're getting in 2022.
1: Yep, yep. Uh all right, but that is the that's the menagerie more or less in terms of the highlights at least. All right, and this is the last book, The Light of Zixis. The Zarxixix Of Zark, the light. (laughs) The light, yes. Um, Disclaimer, this adventure wrecks havoc with your beautifully imagined homebrewed campaign world. We hope that your players will care enough about your world to save it, but if not, may we present the Rock of Brawl as an alternative? Just remember to leave your vendettas at the docks.
0: That's extremely funny, because the stakes of this are, yeah, the evil elves are going to blow up Earth, and at the end you can be like... Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, yeah, if if your players are not invested in your homebrew, this is a great opportunity to to blow it up. Um, the the uh, cover photo of the astral elf villain and his solar dragon is pretty cool. Um, I actually, before this book even came out, this uh, art was released and I had it saved. Uh, if you know, <laughs> it, uh, traditionally in season or episode one of each season, I do uh, D&D art. Uh, for the mm-hmm. YouTube channel or whatever. And I was like, this is a sick picture. We might use this.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think there's another picture of that person with their solar dragon right in the introduction as well. So we got, like, two good solar dragon depictions in rapid uh, succession here.
0: Yeah, the solar dragon in the story, I got to say, it does not really have a personality. Uh, is also young and small compared to, like, the one that I had in season five, which was, like, just truly a... a- a galactic threat. Mm -hmm. And this one is basically a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. It's a horse that the, the elf villain rides around. So uh, do you want
1: to give us the premise of this? So, yeah, the, it basically, like it alludes to the premise is that you're trying to save your home world from these astral elves. Um, And you are basically seeing a lot of the, Basic, essential spell jammer, space-dwelling creatures. You'll meet an astral elf princess who's dealing with a power struggle with their 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 twin brother who is threatening the uh, who's threatening stuff. Uh, Prince was it uh, Zeleth? I believe. Sorry, you're gonna go with it. It's a lot of X. Yeah, they're it's like Zeleth
0: and Zenith or something. They're both extremely Z- similar Z- names. Uh, and
1: Z- uh, Zidali, I think, is the princess. Zidali and Zelith. They're
0: both extremely interchangeable. Uh, Like spoilers, if you kill one, the other just takes their place. (laughs) Just Um, (laughs) they have no personality. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying that they are as two dimensional as like evil fascists go.
1: Yeah, they basically are there just to serve the, to move the plot forward and, like, the contingencies built into it. There's a lot of stuff in this adventure that is written in such a way where it's hard to card fail out of the adventure because even if things go wrong, the plot still kind of moves the party forward along the way. It also...
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I no, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was just thinking about a couple of different ones, like where it's like if you if uh, your party isn't doing well, someone shows up and saves them. Yes. It's like, all right. So <laughs> <laughs> now you can kind of just punch
1: yourselves in the face until the cutscene starts, I guess. Yeah. Punch yourself in the face. Cutscene starts. Gain a level. So listen, if you need an excuse to get your party from level five to eight, you know, hey, here you go. Here's your uh, here's your plot line there. Yeah. Um,
0: it's also- I'm going to talk a lot of shit about this, and I want you all to know that writing a adventure path like this is very hard. Yes, and I don't know that I could do better. Uh, making a you know A to B publishable product for people who want to improv is just—it's an enormous task, and I don't. Uh, envy it, and the, I hope if the, this gets back to the people who wrote it, uh, I'm sure you did a great job <laughs> with what you were given, and uh, there's a couple of great characters in here, so please don't yeah. uh, take what I'm saying as a personal attack.
1: <laughs> right, yeah, writing an adventure path of any sort is not easy, and especially ones that are going to be ones that people are going to jump into and try to play early on as starter things. Even Fandelver, which is getting a refresh in the next uh, year, um, you know, even that can have huge issues to deal with depending on your your table dynamics and stuff. And so there, there's at least efforts in here to assist a newer GM running the game to keep things moving forward. But it feels like in order to pull it off, there's a lot of, like, like weird assumptions and backbending in order to pull off some of those theatrics and such, so... That being said, uh, let's just go ahead and jump into it here. Yep, the, the, it
0: starts. This is, a, I think, a, a venture for a level five character. Yes, uh, you're in. It could be any city. I think it says you, uh, you know, go to Sword Coast if uh, you don't have an idea of where to start. Mm-hmm. Uh, giant uh, seeds fall down from the sky, burrow into the ground, create giant vines, and then creatures come out. These are the Astral Blights. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first note here. I didn't actually take physical notes. My brain note is that this is an unwinnable fight that uh, is not particularly signposted to be so you can just fight these astral blights for quite a while and like it you roll to see how many more appear it says if the characters stay in a single location for more than a minute 1d6 astral blights converge on their location and attack them um and knowing the groups i tend to play with this would be where Sam and
1: Mari die. <laughs> More or less. They, they get dropped out of zero hit points and then immediately declare they're dead. And then you have to say, that's not how this works. I've told you this many times. And, uh, and But yes, like it, it, the fact that it opens with a fight that the party is not meant to win is a choice. <laughs> um, it's not bad. It's not. It's fine. I I love Paper Mario. <laughs> it starts that but, way. But like you said, like signposting that clearly to the GM on the way in and and such is uh it's one of those things that's just like oh wait oh okay that's how this is supposed to work um i can def i know i've played with some
0: people in real life who would get frustrated and then they would keep fighting until they got knocked down and then they would be like whatever fuck you i'm gonna go play video games (laughs) (laughs) uh which speaks more to my my friend choices than the book i guess (laughs) Uh, regardless of what you do, uh, which is uh, a theme we'll come back to, if, whether you go to the, <laughs> the docks or you escape the city, which are the two options presented, uh, you end up getting uh, sucked up in a ship, <laughs> one way or another. Yep. Uh, I don't know if you want to speak to this. I understand you have to get the players to space. It's a space adventure. Uh, but starting with an unwinnable fight and a fake choice uh, is certainly a way to structure this.
1: Uh, yeah, like it's, it's weird because... You, there are ways you can get this to happen, I think, but the the tricky part about this as well is like you 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 introduce the you introduce the character um uh, a Ala- elena Startel, and she I believe just kind of shows up and tells the party, you know, hey, you know, you should you should I'm gonna go to my ship. you should come with me. And it's just like, you you pr- present to the party and it's like well either you follow that advice or you are stuck in this unwinnable fight and it just feels like uh, I'll I'll give a little bit of a personal experience I was really lost mine at Fandelver. in the book it makes a point about how the the mayor of the community is afraid to go up against the 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 bandits that have sort of like holed up in the town and I was trying to explicitly tell the player who's trying to drop up one of the bandits to be put in the jail cell. This person is unwilling to take this on because they are afraid. And the and the player was unwilling to move on from that point for 20 minutes. So even something <laughs> as simple as that can just grind a session to a halt. And this really feels like it can grind the campaign to a halt unless you just find a way to get through it really quickly there. Um,
0: I almost think it would be, yeah, I, it's one of those things that it could be very play group dependent because I feel like you could just have so like you hear someone in the uh, in the crowd you're like run we're doomed or something and then you have a player be like yeah we should run or they could just not take the hint you never yeah. you never know what someone's going to do
1: uh, and you can't control them. like one of the things I would almost think is another way to open this would be like they they make friends with the, the sailor they get invited to just like look at the ship and then the attack happens outside and the ca- and you know they just take off on the ship before the party has a chance to go and do something about it you know that's one way to hand wave around it but that's definitely if a if a person's running this for the first time they aren't used to how to railroad into the adventure yeah, <laughs> that, that. this isn't
0: even the worst railroading uh, instance in here. There's one later that was astonishing to me. Like I gasped
1: and put the book down. But <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We're, um, we're, we're, we're I guess the big thing here is that we, um, we do we do have a we do have some good stuff coming up pretty soon. But yeah, it just opens pretty rough to say the least.
0: So yeah, it tells you about a couple of characters here. I'm not going to linger on it because none of these people have like uh, sparkling personalities. Once again, difficult to convey in a in a, this format, mm-hmm. especially when the players can just cut anyone's throat in at any time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the standout is Flapjack the Flumps. Yes, you know I'm a, I'm a slut for flumps. I'm always putting them in, and this guy has a pirate hat with a big feather, and that is, that rocks.
1: Yeah, like I saw Flapjack, and I'm like, this is the star. Of the campaign, and any party who is not going to immediately care about the well being of Flapjack is not a party I want to be associated with. Um, also, just the fact that Flapjack, you know, there's a lot that they do with Flapjack, at least uh, they do enough with fla- uh, Flapjack to be like, Yeah, cool. Um, the hat, I just love the hat, it's too much. The hat is
0: so good, yeah. But the next the next story beat is that you, the ship that fired the seeds at your planet is the uh, the moth that I discussed previously as my favorite ship design uh, attacks you. And there's a big fight and it can go a number of ways uh, including uh, some of the people you picked up taking over your ship. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives you little blocks for like what to do if you win or lose or if, you know, this person's alive and stuff. I think this is actually pretty, pretty good and clever. Yeah. Uh, it talks about questioning both the uh, astral elves and their Pad-O-Z, uh not slaves, but you know, minions, mm-hmm. mercenaries. It says. Uh,
1: so all this is pretty, pretty good. I don't really have any complaints about
0: this stuff. Uh, I don't know if
1: you have any more thoughts about no, that section. No. This, this is actually like I agree with you. This is the sort of stuff where I look at. This like this is stuff that is useful as like beats for someone running the game. You got a handful of main options. Things that are presented as broad beats, but not hard scripts, and it's easy to finesse around and create the illusion of pathing out to the next area without feeling like a hard railroad over. Um. Yeah, and you know this can end with
0: uh, your friend uh, helming the ship, your enemy stealing, or, you know, uh, what's it, uh, mutinying and taking the ship, mm-hmm. Travis, or, or you being a prisoner of the Astral Elves and then ends with a cliffhanger, which is, oh no, a Nautiloid. And uh, this, I mean... Kind of exactly my style of DMing, honestly, is being like, listen, it can go any number of ways, and then I have I have a cliffhanger into the music. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's a very Austin style end of chapter.
1: Yes. Um and you know, they're they're getting right to the Nautiloid pretty early on in whole things. I'm like, yeah, good. That is fine. I've also as a small quibble about the formatting this in DD Beyond, um, When you are using the navigation stuff, you have, like, previous chapter and next chapter, like, things to use a navigation bar. But by chapters, they mean parts, and the parts contain chapters. I'm just like, that's not not fun, guys. It's like, next chapter, you click there. Nope, that takes you to the next part of the campaign, not the next chapter, which is on the same page as you were presently. But, yeah, yeah. you, I don't know if we mentioned that. I have the physical books. So you're on the digital. Yes. If that
0: matters for your listening experience.
1: <laughs> yes. Uh, the amount of detail they go into the Nautiloid layout and stuff is what I would expect. Um, I, it's, it's, it is it's presented basically as a dungeon almost in how it's detailed out, which all that makes sense. Um, and so it's a very traditional, like a
0: lot of the adventure paths for 5e, uh, have uh, multiple sections of this size. This is a pretty short book, all things considered, mm-hmm. the 64 pages, compared to like Ascent from Avernus, which I feel like was like a chunkier book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, yeah, th- this is exactly what I was talking about earlier with using ships as dungeons. And there's a, a variety of different encounters with different aliens. You got yourself a Nethalgu, a Surlon, a Quaggoth, uh just, just a, a rogues gallery of things here. Because uh, it turns out that the... Nautiloid is Derelict, uh, so you don't actually have to fight a bunch of Mind flares, <laughs> which uh, for a level, what, six party? Uh, a whole ship full of Mind flares, not really a survivable <laughs> encounter.
1: You're level five because you don't actually gain a level until after you're done with this chapter of the campaign. Uh, it even has a little call nice. at the end saying, here ends part one of the adventure. Each character should gain a level before the next session. So even in this case here, um, they've abstained from doing exp base leveling they're doing it based on milestones which you know fair enough that's all good but yeah yep. that's that's the last part I, of. I feel
0: like every everyone is going into that mode i, I was a, a pioneer i'm taking credit yeah. <laughs> for the rise of the milestone level
1: yeah you, you um, go for it you know
0: <laughs> once again we're ending this section on a cliffhanger as you leave the derelict a yogi night spider uh, which is the, one, the, the ship from the first episode of Markov uh, shows up. And then it's like, oh, no, we're going to fight them. And then this is the one of the interesting sections where it's like, no, actually, uh, some other people show up and they can fight them. It's like, what? Mm-hmm. I don't know how you feel about this. To the rescue is the name of this uh, section. But I, you could also call it. Uh, you don't have to play D&D if you don't want
1: to. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I believe that's. Oh, shoot. Um yeah, exactly, yeah, that's that's the opening of the next chapter there, and, like, yeah, um, I don't know, yeah, like this is something that I feel like that you would do for a party of level 1 characters in, like, sort of a, if you're trying to do some sort of set piece, like, you're escaping somewhere, and you get to see, like, a foreshadowing of a later threat on the way out, but these are, like, level 6 characters by this point, so... They want to. They're gonna feel a little bit more like I want to get in there and do stuff. But yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to
0: call anyone out, but I've listened to a number of actual play podcasts, and I find this is actually a really common tactic: mm-hmm. is to have an NPC show up to save the player characters to make that NPC seem cool. And my my approach, I guess this is not you know right or wrong. It's just my approach is that you want the player characters to feel cool. Mm. Uh, and the npcs to be like secondary yes um, not that the whole world needs to revolve around them uh that's that can also feel weird but uh it's just I, it's not about my characters and whether i th- make them cool or like awesome or whatever that, that's a it feels like a rookie mistake
1: it it, it, it reminds me of like war inspector's thought process when it comes to like Talking about like the original Deus Ex and being like, yeah, the when when the cool thing's about to happen, the player does it, the NPCs are there to watch the player do cool things, and like, yeah, like it's especially because the way this is set up, he's not even like the players did anything to lead to this. This is just sort of like, surprise, someone shows up, yeah. Absolutely,
0: and in fact, we, we've recorded an episode of the season we're on, Arabella, recently, where I feel like uh, any other <laughs> uh, uh, DM would have called in an NPC to help, and my, I just, I just don't, I just won't. <laughs> I, I need them to have their their consequences. I need their actions <laughs> to drive the. M- maybe I'm a, I'm an extremist about this. In, in uh, retrospect, maybe I should do this more often. Anyway, this is a DMing philosophy conversation more than a review. Now, right. Um, th- the next section after you get saved uh, is you go to the Rock of Brawl, which is the iconic you know, location from Spelljammer where everyone's kind of having their their downtime and talking. You meet a GIF who's going to be like a main character for this whole story. He has a parrot. That's pretty cool. Yep. Uh, I don't know if we need to linger too much on this. There's a little bit of a struggle over a boat. Uh, and then Because actually, it, eventually it becomes clear, you're not going to have one iconic ship there are a number of ships that are going to come in and out of your grasp over this adventure mm-hmm. and the, eventually the book stops trying to even dictate which one you're on um it just says like whatever your ship you're on go to the next day, location because you can just ha- you can be on the pirate ship you can be on the the ship from this gif you can be on any number of ships mm-hmm. uh at, by the end of this thing
1: yeah um I, I i do like i do like some of the names that have flo- throw- throwing around here the 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 the, yeah, the ship that the GIF has is the, called the Second Wind, which, you know, fine. Mm-hmm. That's that's all well and good. Um, there's a couple of other... <laughs> yeah, I could see the, the Jolly Boats call out there. Yeah, like, all that's well... I think all that's well and good, but this is all just, like, means of introducing kind of the next NPCs, get you onto the next vessel, and then move on into the next encounter effectively
0: yeah this is a kind of downtime episode you assume the players will shop Mm -hmm. and then get uh have some kind of uh comedy thing where for 30 minutes they increasingly cause calamity and then get chased around by the guards because that's how players always act yeah uh and none of that's written out here (laughs) you you just there should be a section that's like insert hijinks here
1: yes uh um <laughs> these are the types of merchants. These are the these are the things they have. And they don't have. If a player tries to buy this type of item, the shop doesn't have it. No matter how many times they roll persuasion to get it. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, so once you leave, you, there's another combat encounter by the uh, this Rhaegar or Rhaegar uh, who attacks you for kind of uh, not really important reasons. <laughs> I think they're mad at the person you're with. Mm-hmm. Um, but this, the important thing to me is how this ends, which I, was the part where I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me?" Mm-hmm. Um, if if you defeat the enemy, their ship sends out a signal that disables your uh, thing, and if you lose, your ship gets disabled. So no matter what happens, your ship gets disabled. And at this, I was like, "So basically, you should just you should bomb your own ship <laughs> to get through this fight." I don't understand. I mean, I do understand, just because they want you to be able to continue no matter what. But also because this person is essentially plot-irrelevant. <laughs> um, they Like, this is not a story about the Rygar. It's not a story about, like, a rivalry. Uh, this whole section I found really astonishing. And it felt like they were just like, we need to throw a Rygar in here to just show that they're around.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, like, it's... I, look, I even list, like, the little, like, thing they have you read when this when your ship is disabled it's just like you want a victory but at what cost it's like okay
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah the cost the cost that you arbitrarily decided also there's a third option i guess which is if you kill the rygar's ship because it's a living ship the aesthetic uh but, but <laughs> then the rygar takes your ship and jettisons you into space mm-hmm. so you no matter what you're ending this floating in space whether you have a ship you have their ship they have your
1: ship <laughs> there just isn't any uh other outcome mm-hmm. um frustrating yeah and and I, I I do even like how the next section it's like, if the if the ship is intact and the spell Jemingham is functional, where I'm just like, oh uh, uh, okay, so yeah, I get
0: I get it. They want you to have uh, a big encounter to show off one of the iconic species, and then to move into a, a low stakes, self contained thing because mm-hmm. the whole next chapter is devoted to this this wizard and her little tower. Topola is her name, mm-hmm. um, which I believe. No, I was going to say that's a Final Fantasy character, I want to say, from 4? Ooh. that's I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if it's even a reference. Uh, it just reminded me uh, of that. But um, this whole thing is essentially an opportunity for you to put on a very silly voice for this wizard. It's like a fun social encounter, I think. And then you have to fight a boss to get an item. It's a, it's a classic uh, bring me a, a bear ass and I'll give you the the
1: key. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, um, just double checking to see anything there. I do love the art they have for Topola, though. I think that the the art show depicting her with a bunch of birds is very good. But I have mm. definitely already seen people talk about this character and the voice they'll use uh, for her, <laughs> and it's, it's as yeah. you it's as you allude. Just this is the yeah, this is like the little like reprieve after the big threatened moment. So it's. Again it's very I'm trying to think about it's it's very cinematic I guess in its pacing in that respect um yeah it reminds me
0: of the that part in the dark crystal where they go to the place with the the lady with the um orrery it's like, it's yeah, it's, it's the witch who gives you uh, the important item on your quest. A lot of mm-hmm. fantasy stories have this exact beat uh, and she's like, oh, if defeat the monster and I'll give you the item and then you do that. It's The only, t- really, the wrinkle is that you can bring her with you um, and that kind of pays off in the next section, but I don't know why you wouldn't because mm-hmm. it acts like, yeah, I think it says like, if you say no, she looks sad, but it's like, okay, whatever, and then it's like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I guess there, you have to fill in some of that yourself because it turns out uh, in the next section you meet her ex. Right. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you want to talk about that. No,
1: I, I, yeah, you're talking about the uh, uh, Grimzod, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the best name for a zombie, Grimzod
0: Gargan Hale. Um, Honestly, the most anime character, he is wearing that uh, Tokyo ghoul mask, and he has uh, a severed hand, which is uh, sentient and goes on a little adventures. Honestly, it's a pretty cool character. Mm
1: -hmm. And like, yeah, Um, it's a big missed opportunity if you don't have Topolo along for the whole thing there. It also leads to yeah. Good gosh! I just came across the art for Grimzod. That's a great look there. <laughs> it's a great. It's it's a very it's like the hot topic ready.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, like if if that anime takes off, you know he's going to be iconic. Um, but yeah, once you get the item from Topola, you, uh, you you find some pirates, and this is a section where you get the option to join the pirates. There's like a little box for here are the rules for pirates. Feel free to add your own um, <laughs> because they are not just pirates.
1: They're, they're vampires so yeah so, I, I just like like the pirate code article one don't eat each other article two no hymns
0: yeah it's it's very funny it's kind of slapstick uh, their ship's called the Last Breath mm-hmm. which is uh, fun and then yeah the, the combat encounter is that they are tired of getting their asses kicked and there's a mutiny and then you have to fight but whether you win or lose it doesn't matter because uh, you can have their ship you can have your ship uh, you can contrive another ship to come along. <laughs> it's it's really it's it's kind of a wacky uh, 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 detour before you go back to fight these fucking evil elves it's that you might have forgot about. Were the premise of this <laughs> adventure.
1: Yep, uh, I, I, the, the, the chapter ends with "Look, a princess." <laughs> And yep, yeah, because the reason that this
0: all happened is that they have a princess prisoner who is the twin of the elf who bombed your planet with the seeds that are eating it. I don't know if this hasn't been revealed necessarily to the players that, like, what happened at the beginning was that the ship shot these seeds, the seeds eat your planet, and then send the energy back to the dying star that sustains the elf homeworld. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way to save your planet, because the seeds are essentially invincible is to blow up their son, which is kind of intense. That's a high stakes plot. Either you kill all of them or they kill all of you. Not really any middle ground. There's no uh negotiating out of this one.
1: Yeah, you you can't you can't you can't talk to the one person and choose the right dialogue options to get them to retreat and end the uh the game that way. This isn't Fallout New Vegas or something. <laughs>
0: Yeah, can I roll persuasion to get the elves to chill out? <laughs> can, can we can it's we like, can, uh... can we get
1: like some spa- can we get like some space cocaine and just kind of like chill out together?
0: Like, you can't do that. <laughs> yeah, but I think I already spoiled that this elf princess who ostensibly is trying to help you take her her evil brother down is essentially just as evil and completely interchangeable. Uh, They don't really have that much personality. If anything, she is there as a tool to develop the uh, gif that you were friends with Mm -hmm. because uh, he has, like, this bad history with the elves. And there's this whole section, actually, uh, called Old Wounds in the book where you can talk about this backstory with him and be like, (laughs) the subsection's called What's Wrong, Big Guy?
1: Yep. I love that. I, I, I saw that. And I like the fact how even this has a situation where you can mess up with um, cheering up uh, the gif and it has a detailed thing about what happens if you fail. Then like they he sulks in this cabin re emerges one d eight hours later. Sure. Yeah. It's it's
0: it's funny. It's hard to like script ca- encounters like this. You don't know what the players are gonna do. What if one of them is a, you know, a professional comedian who's like really funny, <laughs> or what if one of them is just like a psycho evil monster? What you can't really c- control for all the factors that'll go into this. But I admire them trying. So
1: what if what if one of your player characters says, "I want to be a space clown," it's just like that's not a player. I'm gonna play a space clown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so at, at this you eventually use the
0: item Topola gave you to go to what's called doom space which is just the next level not really super important to break all this down mm-hmm. but this does end with my other uh, least favorite cliffhanger which is before Crux can formally introduce Warwick to the group two bullets eru- erupt from the ground and the characters mist. missed uh, that section is <laughs> literally says bullet time which is fun and then next chapter uh no bullet encounter. <laughs> it just... It, this uh, The actual system part is uh, talking about, like, oh, here's a map and stuff, but when you actually go to Chapter 8, Arena of Blood, it says the two bullets that appeared at the end of the previous session can be fought, or the characters can retreat to the safety of their ship, which just feels... Like a cop out. There's a part in the Stephen King story *Misery* mm. where the villain talks about how, as a child, she used to go see these serials. So this is like in the 50s, and every every th- one would end with like a big cliffhanger, and then the next one it wouldn't be resolved. Right. And she like the guy he goes in a he's in a car and he goes off a cliff, and then the next episode starts with him having jumped out of the car before it went off the cliff, and she gets so mad about this, she like breaks the, this guy's ankles with a fucking hammer. <laughs> Yeah, and like all, all I could think about is fucking misery. And uh, Annie Bates, just or is it Annie Wilkes? Uh, Bates is the actress who won an Oscar for the role. Um, I, I do love the just f- going ape shit on this fucking guy.
1: Yeah, I, especially when you're talking about the bullet time section. The fact that there's a thing that the the GM is expected to read explicitly, and then right afterwards it says here ends chapter seven, and then. Yeah, just, like, next as you start. So, anyways, you're off on you're off on your ship again. That was, a, oh, that, was a, that was a close call there. We almost got into trouble back there, but that was some quick thinking just running away. I guess it's called bullet time because they dodged it by bending backwards. God damn um, it. That is... Shit. That's, you b- got him. Bullets...
0: Bu- Bullets aren't even like an iconic spell jammer like thing. It's not like a, it's not climactic. I don't know. I yep. I don't like it. Yeah, like, like I said at the beginning, not trying to be mean. It just doesn't feel appropriate.
1: Right, right, right. Um, especially like to yeah to end to end a chapter, episode, session with for sure. Um, let's see here. Then we go. Yep. Yeah, but now we're just next stuff, learning about coalitions we got bases and stuff like that to contend with um, yeah
0: basically the there's the next major NPC you got to deal with is Vokath, who is a mercane the blue giants who love to trade not gonna unpack that here but the whole thing is like fight in his arena and it'll help you uh but spoiler alert it doesn't matter uh you have to fight through all these locations and then the bad guys just show up anyway i honestly feel like you can skip a lot of this it feels like uh, kind of uh, combat filler, it's like uh, we're going to sit down for three hours next Sunday and we're going to fight uh, a Braxit, a Brogue, a Brown Scaver, a Grey Scaver, and a Mega and then we're going to go get pizza. <laughs> like, it doesn't, it's not really role play that heavy. Nope, nope. Um, because yeah, at the, at the basically at the end of this whole section, this arena, I mean arenas are a classic way to stretch like every JRPG has a part where you have to, to go to an arena and fight a bunch of guys. hmm um, the, the villain shows up on his dragon and this is like the, kind of the final boss preview. You could fight him if you want, but it doesn't really matter. Ooh, that's a, that's a theme, isn't it? Right. Uh, it tells you like, if you defeat his dragon, he summons a new one. <laughs> if you defeat him, it turns out it's a clone.
1: It's like, suck me off. I like, I, um, I would almost like this. Like you defeat the dragon and you D six more dragons show up. <laughs> <laughs> It it really
0: is kind of lame. The the important thing is that the sister gives you her ring before uh, getting taken back to their home planet. The brother basically kidnaps her Mm -hmm. uh, to do a... Uh, a Jupiter ascending situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen that film, but he needs to have a big ceremony that you can uh, wreck later. Uh, and he needs a sister, but the ring is a MacGuffin. She gives that to you before being taken back. And uh, I guess if you don't know she's evil, you're like, oh no, we have to save the princess.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yep. We can skip all. That. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and
1: then, yeah, but then we go into the, then we have factions to deal with. And, coal- and yes. forging, forming coalitions. So now we're in the uh, the the. It's like, oh, speaking of New Vegas. Here's some coalitions to possibly deal with. I mean this so this part I think had a ton
0: of potential. Mm-hmm. It's almost like a mini game. It, there's a part here where it says um the following is an example of forming a coalition rules and play, which implies like oh this is a separate rule set just for this encounter where you're like doing social stuff that D&D like doesn't have uh existing systems for. In practice spoilers, none of this matters Mm -hmm. Uh, because no matter what you do in the next section, you get beat up and taken prisoner. It doesn't matter if you have a cool coalition of uh, awesome guys who rock, or if you piss them all off and, you know, poop yourself in front of them and they'll hate you. Uh, It's simply, it it is nothing. This reminds
1: me me of the dragon heist um, adventure because it's like, you have chapter two of that, which is your 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 party's given this, you know, derelict, you know, uh, rundown tavern that you spend months effectively in universe building up. And then all of a sudden, fireball blows up out na- next door and your party's just expected to go investigate it and have concern about their neighbors, irrespective of what the setup is. And there's a lot of, like, a lot of things you can do, but it all leads to one point. And especially because... I really like the prompts they have for how the attitude adjustments work and like this is one of those things I would just rip out of this and just use as its own rule set in another sort of like campaign, you know
0: yeah we've done we've done factions in a couple seasons now in one way it's kind of like the season four where there was the different um companies in the crown corporation and you kind of had to pick which ones to align with to take down the other ones but that was like a whole campaign like that basically was in the background of the entire campaign um another one is the the way we did it in season five the the markov season we've discussed so much which is like at the end we had to assemble a coalition to fight the final boss essentially Mm -hmm. um and that there was a couple of last minute choices basically. It was like, oh, when the bad guys attacked, it was like, who do you run to save right now? And uh the people they picked to, to rush to were their best allies. And the people they did not, uh, were were fucking pissed, honestly. Mm-hmm. That was that was kind of a controversial point where they're like, Why are these people so mad? And it's like, uh, because you didn't prioritize them when they were being attacked. Like yep. <laughs> any any other things aside, that's gonna make someone mad at you. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um Um and, and like yeah, like you said, it's it's a it's a missed opportunity because there's all this stuff about this setup, but the payoff is it's a single track. There's just, you know.
0: There's- yeah, the way the way I, the payoff in season four was completely organic. It literally just steered like what everyone was up to. That that was really hard to recreate. You can't really put that in a book because it's every granular decision. Five was just like who is there at the final battle, uh, and then I actually assigned people numbers and would roll to see if they get like killed mm. by the bad guy. And that that was like uh, I think a much more replicable situation. But in here. What happens first, they do this weird cliffhanger where someone with a red dragon shows up and they kind of try to bait you into fighting it. They're like, oh, I'm going to kill you all. And then it says, like, if uh, you don't fight, she's like, I'm just kidding. And it gives you an item and leaves, <laughs> which it seems like that's just that's just a fucking um, mouse trap to try to see if your players will put their dick in it because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. it's a red dragon. Uh, so it's not a good idea to fight it. I don't know why that's there.
1: No, I, I don't know why either. And it's just. Good Gosh, Thunder just clapped during that whole bit there.
0: <laughs> um, yeah,
1: oh, good gosh, and then yeah, now you're in Z- uh, Zari Zarixi space. Gosh, these days,
0: yep, this, yeah, this is the elf home world, there's a big fight. Uh, like I said, we can skip a lot of this because it doesn't really matter. Uh, you either, like, fight and then uh, get get there or you lose and then they bring you there. It doesn't. And either way, you end up at the big ceremony, which uh, they're like, if anybody has any reason why I should not become the emperor and destroy your home world, speak now or forever, hold your peace. And then you say, I object. <laughs> um, and then there's a big fight. And uh it tries to there's kind of this like this idea that you would side with one or the other i'm trying to find the little box where it says like um loyalty to one yeah loyalty to zadala or Mm zealoth and it's like i don't know anything about the one guy and he's actively trying to blow up my planet why would i be loyal to him i don't know this doesn't make any sense as a a dilemma Mm -hmm. essentially but uh you get uh confronted by trial by combat they bring out the zodar who is not foreshadowed in any way uh i know about zodars obviously but if you didn't i imagine that would be confusing Mm -hmm. um and that's essentially the final boss fight i guess you could fight the the the, any remaining elves on your way to the uh the portal because the way this ends is like there's a portal to the star and if you throw the macguffin ring into the portal it blows up their star and your home is safe and then the alternative is don't do that and your home explodes
1: yep it also in spoilers, if you defeat the Zodar in the trouble, it just regains a hit point so it can tell you it's one message, you know, just like it's one of the things where like the like you alluded to, like the fight happens, but whether you win or lose the fight, you still have the final plot point to go through and it's just well, this is the only choice that basically matters at the end of the campaign more or less <laughs> uh, yeah it's there's a
0: couple different ways to do good endings and bad endings in video games uh sometimes it's the choices you make along the way mm-hmm. sometimes it's a at the end of uh, day Sex, human revolution there are three buttons to trigger a final cutscene, and you just push whichever cutscene you want to see mm-hmm. uh that's that's the style um yeah the zodar thing is because they can only speak three times in their lives mm-hmm. and they are presumably motivated by something and that's such a mystery that's the thing i had in the background of my zodar was like what are they up to what are they trying to accomplish and the the heroes never found out and they're still out there Mm -hmm. uh but here it's like your your mission was to lose a fight and then say you blow up the star and then heal everyone and then die and it's like you could have just taken the ring and thrown it in the thing my dude Mm -hmm. like genuinely what is what is your motivation and why
1: I don't yeah, like like it, you know, this. Reminds me of like the end of Fallout Three. It's like you know, one of your companions could just walk into the thing; they're immune. To they, they they can't be harmed by radiation. But no, no, no. A character has to go in there and die. So <laughs> yeah, just same. St- this is your this is your
0: destiny. Uh, your your partner says, um, <laughs> when the CDC released the latest latest COVID. Uh, uh, memo or something. Someone posted uh, that picture, which <laughs> is like it is your destiny. I can't help you. <laughs> the
1: CDC says. Oh no. <laughs> but like, yeah. Um, Saviors of the multiverse. I just like the fact that. Um, just like, yeah. Conclusion. Uh, if it's spared, if the if if Zark says is spared, your worlds at the brink of annihilation, and you know, go back to your home world and see it blow up, or if it's destroyed, then. Yay, you're the savior of the multiverse. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well. So uh, as,
0: as an ending, it's like the, these evil elves uh, are, are extremely foolish. They just bring these adventurers right up to them in their portal. <laughs> they have you fight a minion who hasn't been foreshadowed. The minion is secretly on your side and will heal you. Uh, it's a very strange confluence of events and uh, I don't love it I think uh, one thing is that um, someone must travel into the heart of the star either by ship or via the astral font Uh, everyone realizes this is a journey from which there's no coming back so it can be a heroic sacrifice Um, and it says if no character volunteers for this Grimzod Garganhale who is the vampirate does so Um, and I think that's kind of cool um, as far as like if i'm trying to do a, a compliment sandwich here mm-hmm. <laughs> um like that i think the idea of asking your characters to uh, do a heroic sacrifice is not a bad beat and having a cool character willing to step up if they don't mm-hmm. is also it's uh characterization mm-hmm. which is lacking in a lot of these guys so yeah that's really the only positive thing i have to say about the the finale
1: Gr- yeah grim zod having like a cool moment is just nice just because grim zod is definitely one of the highlights I think of the adventure as a whole as you alluded to earlier it's just you know and it's yeah, it's unfortunately I think the byproduct of them having to create something that fits within 64 pages I think that was like mandated by the design of this package along with trying to do a lot of set pieces to show off a lot of Spelljammer itself but I'm wondering how many people might just look at the adventure and then rip out ideas from it and then run it in a very different manner um you know which is fine mm-hmm. if, if
0: that's that is value for the product so yeah. um if, if that is the way it works then
1: honestly it kind of accomplished its job mm-hmm. yeah but i think it's one where i would find it hard to run it as written and as structured um unless you had a party that was just very much on board with just going with things and not really challenging how the story can go. Um, but yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, the, honestly, the twist should have been flapjack, the flump, right? Yeah. Floats out from behind the throne. I was behind it all. You've been a f- fool. You played right into my hands. Oh, good
1: gosh. That would um. be amazing. If Flap <laughs> like just flat, like, or, or if we wanted to inspire the party to actually have one of themselves sacrifice, Uh, in order to do the thing at the end, have Flapjack be the one that volunteers, like, no, no, we can't, we can't let the precious flump go through that, one of us will take it on. I mean, and also the the whole flying your ship into
0: the heart of the sun thing did happen in season five. Uh, no one died, but it was like the ship itself dying was the tragedy because everyone was really attached to it. yeah uh, un- unlike in this campaign where you're basically just hitchhiking across the galaxy, you, there's no iconic
1: ship for the party to have. and no opportunity really for the party to make like their own ship in the thing is written. it's like it's assumed that your party's just a bunch of folks from Earth that get pulled up into space to go on wacky adventures. Um, And I think it'd be a very different vibe if you started this campaign with a a party that's already kind of in space and and such. Honestly, it would make things a lot faster, but, you know... (laughs)
0: Yeah, also, I mean, I would make a bunch of changes to it. I would have the Zodar show up much earlier and, like, maybe deliver uh, a line at the beginning, mm. middle, and end. Yes. Uh, that for- foreshadows, because it can speak three times, foreshadow different elements and a hint at a larger agenda. Um, oh, that's so. And then you'd have to do some stuff, but that's my first thought.
1: No, no, I think that's great, especially because it plays well into the Zodar. And if you have the Zodar presented like that, it does make those beats more meaningful um, and especially just as a good building of that. Cause I think that fat, the can only speak three times is I think that's a, I think that's a cool design, a uh, design element and it, having them that flaunts that is uh would have been nice. So yeah, like, like you alluded to just a lot of potential that feels like it's not as exploited as hard as it could have been. And a lot of things that, do railroading for the sake of just making sure you're hitting all the story beats and you know for I almost like to think of it as like this is almost like a, a ride at Disney or universal type of adventure <laughs> you know yeah um yeah so
0: I don't, I don't know that I could do better if i if someone hired me to do one of these paths I probably would make a bunch of uh, errors and mistakes so if this isn't like a am a genius and you're a fool thing uh, it's just a real hard. It's a hard assignment. So Absolutely. Uh, I'm definitely stealing space clowns. That is, <laughs> that is something that's <laughs> happening. I guess to, t- to wrap up as we reach the two-hour mark, um, I could talk more, but I feel like people have gotten their content's worth. Um, I think we should make an announcement, which is that uh next season is going to – their sirens. They're coming for me. Can you hear that's them? That's
1: right. <laughs> They're like, no, don't make this don't announcement. Make it. It's too, it's too <laughs> spicy. <That's>
0: too- <laughs> get, get on the ground. Stop resisting. Um, season 10 of Dice Funk is going to be another space season. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like we've never really done a, a tease this far in advance. It's just the timing is perfect with this release of Spelljammer material. Um, if I was better at this, I would do some kind of partnership with watsy uh, I don't know how to make that happen. I am just a humble uh moron. So <laughs> I I guess we're gonna do an unofficial tie in with this material. Uh, there's a couple of reasons. One is I think it's a just a clean pattern for us to go to space every five seasons, seasons five and ten, and then presumably fifteen being space feels like a fun uh, tradition uh one thing is leon uh as he tweeted so i'm not i'm not breaking any news here leon thomas uh only really wants to be involved in space stuff he's just not a big fan of fantasy mm-hmm. um, so when i pitched a, a star trek adjacent adventure uh he got he got interested and excited he tweeted about coming back to the show for i believe only one season uh so it's it's really that uh, opportunity that I think will give us some some fresh blood, a return of an old face. Uh, it's it's good stuff. Um, I don't know how much more I want to say. The whole cast isn't finalized. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is partially incompetence on my part, <laughs> and partially just the fact that scheduling D D is hard. Yes, uh, I'm trying to get people together, but everyone's schedules are you know difficult. People are moving. There's a pandemic. <laughs> it's a lot. It is a
1: lot. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I saw the reaction to Leon's announcement, and yeah, that's it's really exciting to see Leon uh, be back. Um, the only question is, is he, what is he going to play as? We don't know yet. I don't think we know that. But is he going to be? A- I've
0: heard his pitch, and I I don't want to say anymore. Uh, I will say though. Uh, I think Leon is going to go sicko mode on us. I don't think he's going to play uh, a normal guy going on a normal adventure. I think he is going to uh,
1: fully uh, violet Skittles unicorn us. Well, you know, it's 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 only appropriate. So we will we will see how that plays out when we get there. But we still got like what another at least what sixteen episodes ago in this season before we get there so we got a few months on the burner for that yeah the,
0: the the number of episodes we've recorded and released are quite different i'm looking at my desktop i have episode 25 open i don't think that's what's uh, out there so no. um yeah they're working on different timescales. but um i there's some natural questions people might have about the upcoming season um the only ones i'm prepared to answer are yes it's in the same universe uh, yes, I know when it takes place, but no, I will not say. <laughs> I feel like it will become fairly obvious, but also I want it to be standalone. So I don't want to get bogged down in like trying to clarify the timeline in case someone's just like Googled Spelljammer podcast or something and just, you know, finds it. Um, and they don't have to worry about all the other stuff. But, like, yeah, it's it's going to be a continuation of uh, the universe, like, every season. It's not, like, a separate thing. But I know you're going to say, like, wait, wasn't the whole world destroyed? How is there space? Or whatever. And it's like, it, either you'll figure it out or you won't. Either way, uh, I don't think it's going to have that much impact. Like, you know, Leon is going to go back and listen to season six <laughs> and try to figure out how it fits together. He's going to be too busy, uh, you know, kicking over trash cans and setting small fires. <laughs>
1: As is appropriate for him. So But yeah, uh very cool announcement there. And yeah, it was definitely fun reviewing over all this stuff with you, Austin. So thanks for uh thanks for the idea and inviting me on board for this. So
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. We I mean we could have done a lot more. We skimmed and skipped a lot. Mm-hmm. So um I don't know if there's anything else we should announce. I want to say that uh, law, uh, current listeners, if you're up, up to date with the show, you'll know that you know Sophie is going through a lot of stuff in her personal life, um, leaving the country, per, you know, stuff, and I, it's not really my place to speak on. Um, so that they have been scarce recently. And that is shaking up the main show in some ways. And I have plans and I want you to trust me. (laughs) I say making direct (laughs) eye contact with you. Um, It's not, I don't know if it's going to be obvious what's going on at first, but it will become obvious. And I hope you will enjoy the adventure we're going on because it is going to be unique. I think I think you're gonna be like, well, no other podcast uh, would do this. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's what I'll say about Arabella. We're we're reaching. I have a you know a couple more arcs. We're getting. It's gonna be the normal length of the season and then the space
1: time. That's right.